Well, brothers and sisters, we come to a text today which most, if not all of us, probably have heard from childhood, probably saw these with the little felt boards back in the day, if you uh, remember growing up with those. Uh, and yet, it's not actually really a children's story. It's actually quite a sobering text, perhaps we might even say, in light of our great and many weaknesses and frailties, it's even kind of a scary text in a certain sense. In so far, as this chapter shows us what it means that at times as followers and worshipers of the true God, what it means to take up our, our cross and follow Jesus wherever that might lead. I was struck by this simple verse. I was reading a lot in Revelation 13 and 14. Uh, Brother Julius read from Revelation 14. We'll explain why later. But I was struck by this verse in Revelation 14, verse 4. When speaking of the martyrs, it says, These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Sometimes following Jesus <laughs> means He goes into persecution for many throughout the church age and throughout ever since the beginning of the world, even unto death. Sometimes the Lamb may take you there. And in our text, we see the threat of state-sponsored persecution and even execution of those who do not comply. Now, this is sobering, even perhaps a bit scary, because we find ourselves living in a time increasingly, though we still have many liberties. You're like, Pastor, you're preaching in a church. Okay? If someone were to come in here, you could call the authorities and they would have them removed. Yes, amen, and we give thanks for that. Yet we live in a time when increasingly the idea of state-sponsored persecution doesn't seem like that crazy anymore. I remember hearing, ever since I was a little kid, America better get ready for persecution. You ever hear that when you were a kid? I remember hearing that. Then you watch the, no, the, the, you watch the news. You see, certain patterns of authoritarianism, and particularly patterns of just anti-Christian sentiment rising, and you go, yeah, you know what? Maybe we should at least be ready. <laughs> we don't know if it's going to come, but we ought to at least be ready. If it does come in our day, some sort of state-sponsored false worship... It will not come in the form of bowing down to a physical golden idol, as we see in this text, but an idol nevertheless, insofar as you will be commanded, pressured, bidden, threatened, not to bow or burn incense, but to give lip service to lies and to countenance sin. Personally, if I had to say where that might come from, I think the most likely candidate would be some form, of, some form of LGBT affirmation. At least they tend to be the most um, <laughs> uh, hardcore, we might say. No, they will not at this point, as far as we know. I think it would be way far off before they're going to throw any of us in a fiery furnace. They might fine you out of your mind, though. You might try to pay off a bill and find out, oh, my bank account has been frozen. You could be faced with the very real and scary possibility of prison, poverty even for you and your family. And yet, brothers and sisters, as scary as a reality as that is, this text shows us, and take heed, that Christ has not given us the option of bowing, even if outwardly. <clears throat> Andrew Willett says, It is not lawful to bow unto an image, though one in his heart abhor it. Our bodies together with our souls are the temples of the Spirit, and therefore neither the one nor the other should be defiled, but preserved pure and holy for the Lord. And in purer ages of the church, they were considered idolaters, who being constrained by force, did yield the least outward service unto the idols of the Gentiles. Bowing, however so small, is not an option given unto us by our Lord. And 
yet, though that is quite honestly terrifying when you consider your many great weaknesses, you might be wondering, I barely pray consistently, Pastor. How am I going to face persecution? (laughs) Well, here comes the encouraging part. There is a God who can deliver even the weak and the needy and the feeble. You see, if you ask the question, how could I ever face persecution, and you only keep the eyes on yourself, well, the answer is very clearly, you won't. (laughs) If you take your eyes off of yourself, you look on to the infinite God, the question is answered. God can deliver. If you look to the one who is able to preserve the physical flesh from the power of the flame, though it were heated seven times, it's not hard to marvel at the fact that he could preserve your will from hypocrisy and compromise. We should not come to this text today and marvel at the resolve of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego but rather at the power of their God. That's the main point of this chapter, just so you know. It's not so that you go, whoa, I could never do that. Look at those guys. It's so that you go, look at their God. The point is that he has the ability to deliver. For example, in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar tells them, if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands. They respond in verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then lastly, in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar says, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. When something is repeated like that throughout a text, Scripture is telling you, pay attention. This is the big point. The big point of this passage, God can deliver. Yes, we can profit from the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the big takeaway is look at this God. Yes, if that's my God, as weak as I am, I have hope if I face such a situation. That's the response your God wants you to have. It's meant to encourage you, not to terrify you. On the one hand, then, we want to soberly consider what it means to follow the Lamb wherever He goes and to understand that compromise is not an option for us. We don't want to stop there. We want to leave here today confidently hoping in our God as well from this passage that if the Lamb lead us into persecution, wherever he lead us, he will not only be with us, but he will deliver us as well. Let's go ahead and dive into the text. Let's begin in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, And all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had stood up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. 
Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Just a few things to note before we move on with the rest of the story. A lot of people, somebody already texted me this, a lot of people ask, where is Daniel in this chapter? I have no idea. We're not told. It doesn't tell us. Some have suggested he was away somewhere on imperial business. I guess that's possible. However, Nebuchadnezzar called all the rulers from everywhere in the empire to come there to bow down. Others have suggested that Daniel, having favor with the king, was exempt from the worship of the image. But if that were the case, you might also expect his three companions and fellow Jews to receive a similar dispensation. Others, such as Andrew Willett, have suggested that Daniel, quote, did use all means to stop this ungodly enterprise so far as he might go without exasperating the king too much, which would have kindled his anger against the whole Jewish nation. Therefore, Daniel not prevailing gave way unto the time, expecting some other means how it should please the Lord to convert the king. I suppose that's possible. Maybe Daniel did have a special dispensation that his three companions did not. We just don't know. And we have to kind of rest there and avoid the error of accusing Scripture of some kind of error or accusing Daniel of sin and compromise. Next, the question is raised whether or not Nebuchadnezzar decided to make this golden image because of the interpretation of the dream given to him back in Daniel chapter 2, namely that he, as the head of Babylon, was the head of gold of the statue in his dream. I think that that is very likely. He was blown away by the power of Daniel's God. It's kind of funny, as you go through commentaries, there's three, there's three times when people are like, I think he's saved here. They're like, no, I think he's saved here. I think he's saved in Daniel chapter 4, personally, as we'll see. Um, but he's blown away, but that by no means means he had a genuine conversion. And we see that in his vanity, he has twisted the purpose of the dream and decided to make a statue for his honor. Another option, though, and honestly, these can work together with the first is that the idea of this statue was suggested to the king by the Chaldeans and the magicians, who out of envy, uh, envy of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, knowing that they were faithful Jews, that they would not do it in order to get them out of that prized position, suggested, planted the idea in the ears of the king's ear, and uh, the king, being full of vanity, just went right along with it. I suppose that's possible but we're not entirely sure. Continuing on in verse 8, it says, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and babka, bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Well, here the three men are brought in, 
questioned, given another chance to apostatize, and the threat of the fiery furnace is renewed, particularly with a very vain question, though perfectly reasonable to the the mind of the flesh, the question, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Indeed, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, there was no one who could deliver them out of his hands. What gods had delivered all of his other enemies out of his hands when he subdued them and laid waste to their cities and their temples, just as he had done to Jerusalem and its temple as well? It was folly. He has all apparent power. By contrast, they are utterly powerless, at least so it appears. Well, similar words have been uttered thousands of times to Christians throughout the ages. In fact, it's very interesting. We read in Revelation 13 of the beast, the Antichrist, and what does he do? He sets up an image. He commands the whole world to worship, and everyone seems utterly powerless before him to resist. It sounds very much like Daniel chapter 3. In fact, that's intentional. G.K. Beale, this phenomenal commentary on Revelation, if you don't have it, skip a couple meals and buy it as soon as you can. He says, the description of the beast killing those who do not worship the image is inspired by Nebuchadnezzar's command in Daniel 3 that all should worship his image or be killed. In fact, it's interesting, just as Nebuchadnezzar says, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? The worshipers of the beast loudly boast in Revelation 13, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? All seem to fall before his great power. Interestingly, the seven churches of Asia Minor, to whom the book of Revelation was written, found themselves in almost identical circumstances to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Scholars note that in that region of Asia Minor, during that time, there was a lot of pressure, official and unofficial, to conform to what we call the imperial cult, the imperial Roman cult, which was the deification and worship of the emperors of Rome as gods. Beale writes, in Asia Minor, the culture increasingly expected public expressions of loyalty to the imperial cult, and local civil authorities not untypically mandated by law that inhabitants of towns and cities show varying degrees of support for the imperial religion. In fact, in many of those seven cities that you see the letters written to, there were statues set up of the emperors that you were brought before and told to confess them as God and Lord. In fact, in Ephesus, there was a 16-foot-tall statue of the emperor Domitian, one of the seven churches they were commanded to worship. So it was very fitting and timely that John wrote Revelation when he did, that there were these echoes of Daniel 3 in it. However... Though that was a particularly unique application for the initial recipients of Revelation, yet because that chapter, as G.K. Beale puts it, is transtemporal, meaning it describes the period of the church militants as a whole after the ascension of Christ, that means this scenario in Daniel chapter 3, the command to commit idolatry with the threat of death, is a picture of the church age in general, brothers and sisters. Daniel chapter 3, you might say, is a snapshot of what the church will experience from the ascension of Christ to his return. We will indeed, in a sense, feel powerless. You will feel as if there's nowhere you might run, no way of escaping. Indeed, in Revelation 13, the pressure is so great, quote, No one will be able to buy or to sell except those who worship the beast, speaking of economic pressures that the state might put on you. They might not throw you into a fiery furnace. They just won't let you buy food, and they'll smile while they do it. And they'll just say, conform, right? Like Nebuchadnezzar, if you 
are willing to do it, very well. I'm a reasonable person. Just bow to the image. If this happens, don't be surprised, Christians. This is a description of the age after the ascension of Christ until his return. I read a very sobering case. I had heard some of this before, but not the whole thing. It was about a a particular Baptist named Thomas DeLon. Thomas DeLon. Thomas DeLon was a Catholic Irishman, became Protestant, was saved and moved to England to escape persecution. He married the daughter of a well-known particular Baptist pastor named Edward Hutchison. After the restoration of Charles II in England, it was a very hard time. It was a hard time. You know, we hear these stories of, you know, voice of the martyrs in China, things like that. After the restoration of the King of England, it was just as bad. It was really bad in England to be a dissenter at that time. Those who did not conform and worship in the Church of England, because it was too full of Romish leftovers, they would tell you, there were severe punishments upon them. In 1683, when many hundreds were being thrown into nasty, damp, disgusting English prisons where they rotted away, in this time, it happened that the chaplain to the king, Benjamin uh, Calamy, wrote a challenge to the dissenters. What a big, tough guy. He has the law on his side, and he issues a challenge to them in print. He wrote a book called A Discourse About a Scrupulous Conscience. Oh, these Puritans and their scruples. You can hear the condescension. You might even hear the same words in the mouth of the Chaldeans. These Jews and their one God, their one Shema that Jason talked about in Sunday school. Oh, that's fine. Just bow your knee. So many scruples. Calamy issued this challenge to dissenters. He did so not thinking any would, res- any would respond. In fact, he dedicated the work to a George Jeffries, the Chief Justice of Chester, a fervent persecutor of dissenters. And Calamy wrote in the preface that the dissenters, quote, would be justly afraid of quarreling with me when they know I have engaged you on my side. Again, he's a big tough guy, right? Well, Thomas DeLon was a dissenter who was not afraid of quarreling with them or at least issuing a response. He wrote a response titled, A Plea, for the nonconformists, and it became the classic response, not just for Baptists, but for Protestant dissenters in England for decades, if not even longer than that. In fact, you've heard of Daniel Defoe. He wrote Robinson Crusoe. Daniel Defoe was himself also a dissenter, and many decades later republished and wrote a new preface for Delon's work and said it was the perfect response. He said, when people ask me for my separation from the Church of England, I point them to DeLon's work. became like the classic response that dissenters would give. But DeLon was quickly arrested. He was thrown into a nasty English jail, Newgate Prison, with a fine that he had no money to pay. And since he could not get out of prison, he could not make money to pay the fine, Eventually, his wife and two children became destitute on the outside as well, were forced to join him on the inside. Within a short time, they all died. Thomas DeLon, his wife, and two children. I read Daniel Defoe complain in his preface why no one would pay their fines at the time. And I even wondered, and I texted Sam Renahan, I was like, why did no one pay their fines? And he said, have you been reading Daniel Defoe? And I said, maybe. He said, we don't know. It was just a really bad time, and those who had money probably fled the country at the time. It was just really, really bad. And yet, as many persecuted Christians had before him, Delon understood that this is what it means to follow Christ, and he also took courage from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He wrote, were not the three eminent dissenters in Nebuchadnezzar's time so treated for their nonconformity to the religion established by law? In fact, he wrote another book in prison titled Akon Theriu, which is Greek for 
the image of the beast and applying it to Rome, though very subtly applying it to the Church of England. He frames the dissenters in England as those who will not bow to the beast's image. And yet, the beast has set up many images over the centuries and millennia, has he not, brothers and sisters? So do not be surprised when he does so again and commands you to bow with a big smile on his face and the full backing of the state. Do not be surprised. As Mark, or our Lord says in Mark 13, 9, be on guard. For they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Interestingly, if you read Mark 13, where Christ prepares his disciples for persecution, there are several quotes to Daniel in that, in that chapter. It's very interesting. Continuing on, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What boldness. What boldness as witnesses for the true God. What I want us to see here first is that in this situation, that was the correct and indeed the only course of action for a true follower of the true God, to not bow, to not worship. Our brother Julius read from Revelation 14. It gives warnings about the worshiping of the image of the beast. It says, an angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. And then in verse 9, then another angel, a third one followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Christ has not given us the option of compromising even in the tiniest way. Do not be deceived, Christian. You will be told you're being scrupulous. You will be told you're being a zealot. You will even be told you are not acting in love. There was a movie which I enjoyed up to a certain point, and now I hate the movie. <laughs> and, and not just because there's two Jesuit priests in it, okay? Um, <clears throat> no, no, not everybody? Okay. Um, it's a movie by Martin Scorsese. He put this out a few years ago. It's titled Silence. Perhaps you've seen or heard the movie. It's a movie about these Portuguese Catholic priests in the 1600s, who go to find their mentor, who went to Japan during a time of severe persecution against Catholics, and they heard that their mentor had apostatized, and they cannot believe this. Father Ferreira, I think his name was, Portuguese name. So they go to find him. They land on the shores of Japan, and right from the outset, they are very much in danger, and even the Christians there are like, who are you, what are you doing here? And they minister to them. Eventually, the authorities find them. They're rounded up and they're being persecuted. Some of them are dying and you're like, it's, it's very good historically. It's, it's really good uh, historical, which was a very real thing. A lot of Christians were martyred in Japan, okay? But the point of the movie is this. That it's actually more loving to apostatize than to be faithful to the Lord. There's this scene where they have an image of Christ, which is another reason why you don't have images of Christ, okay? But they put it on the ground, and they tell the Christians to stamp on it. And that's, that's how you apostatize. And the Christians are being tortured. 
And this very nice old Japanese man, again, they're always very nice. They want to be your friend. I'm here to help you, right? They tell the padre and his apostatized uh, mentor, they found him. They're both talking to him saying, this would be the greatest act of love. What would be more Christ-like than for you to do this to save? And this other Japanese guard says, it's just a formality. It's just a formality. And so he does it. And then at the end, he lives as a Japanese man. His mentor wrote all these anti-Christian tracts, and he's being buried, and his Japanese wife, who he had, puts a little crucifix in his hand, and the whole point of the movie is he kept his Christian faith the whole time, but just on the inside. It was really more Christ-like to apostatize, because he did it out of love for his flock. Those are lies of the beast, Christian. Do not believe that. Those who do so, will be cast into the lake of fire and tormented as the angel sent by God says. Don't believe Martin Scorsese. Consider the great stakes involved, namely your own soul. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It's your eternal soul. As Christ says, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Christ has not given us that option. Well, here comes the encouraging part. Picking up in verse 19 of Daniel 3, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated, he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. And Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. What a deliverance from fire. Note the angel of the Lord. Christ himself is with them in the midst of the fire. Look, he says, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And yet this is what God always said he would do for those who follow him. He would be them, be with them in their suffering, in their trials and tribulations. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. As our Lord said before he ascended, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Lamb indeed may lead his followers into suffering, but he always upholds them in it. And there is the sweetest communion with Christ in such horrible places as we see here. And yet, this raises a question. That's all well and good, but they got delivered, Pastor. What about Thomas DeLon and his wife and two children? What about all those martyrs? And what about me? I can't presume upon such a deliverance to happen. What am I to do if I'm not delivered? You will be delivered, Christian. You will. God will not fail to deliver you, but there are two kinds of deliverance. I'm not even say three. One where God gives you a chance to escape, and you can take that too. But for our purposes, we'll say there's two. One that is open and physical, and the other that is spiritual and inward. Andrew Willett says, It must be considered here that there are two kinds of deliverance for the servants of God. There is a secret and a manifest deliverance. The secret deliverance concerneth their souls, whom the Lord translateth to glory, wherein the Lord showeth two great works, both in giving them strength by their patience to triumph over the cruelty of their persecutors and in bringing them unto glory. And the Lord's power, he says, is no less seen in their patience than if he had temporally delivered them, as Rupertus Speaking of the holy martyrdom of Laurentius, who was broiled upon a gridiron, saith that the Lord did more gloriously triumph in him than if he had put out the coals. That's not just a kind of sophistry, just so you know. There are two kinds of deliverance, and that's biblical. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Verses 18 through 21. <clears throat> Philippians 1, 18 through 21. Paul in prison says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this, his imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. To me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knows God will deliver him, but whether he lives or dies, it's a separate matter. Commentators argue about what sort of deliverance Paul is talking about here. Some say, well, he knows he will be delivered. His later statement is not saying, I could be delivered either way. He's just saying, you know, either way, God would be glorified. But he knows he'll be delivered. He'll come out of prison. Others understand it in more of a soter soteriological sense. Paul's saying, I know that even if I die, I will be delivered from the wrath to come uh, after this life. I think rather neither of those views are the correct one. One commentator explains what Paul is talking about in this context is neither a salvation from execution nor a salvation in heaven, but a salvation of the Spirit of Christ in the present and empowering to be a bold witness for Christ his Lord. Paul is aware that his trial may be his last and greatest witness for Christ in his body. In fact, his witness may cause his execution. Nevertheless, Paul's goal in life is the exaltation of Christ, whether by life or by death. Paul's hope of salvation is that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. I think that's correct. If you read it again, that's really what Paul says. Look, he says... I know that this will turn out for my deliverance 
through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This twofold deliverance thing, Christian, is not sophistry. It's biblical. Jason and I were talking about this passage earlier in the week, and he mentioned that you see both kinds of deliverance in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. Turn with me there real quick. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verses 32 through 38. After going through a great number of men and women of faith, the author of Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Who do you think he's talking about there? It's Daniel, right? Verse 34, quenched the power of fire. That's Meshach, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But then he says this, switches gear. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Yet, brothers and sisters, God abandoned none of these All of them were delivered and accounted for in one way or another, either in a manifest way or secretly by the power of God. In fact, Thomas DeLon, when he wrote his book, Echontheriu, on the title page, he put Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, and our God is able to deliver us. Do you think he regretted that when he died? Or he found it to be true? He found it to be true. You still may be thinking, yes, but I'm really scared. I don't know how I I could withstand that. I'd say you're crazy if you're not thinking that, or you're just really spirit-filled and you're not like the rest of us, or maybe just me. The answer to that is something that Paul said back in Philippians chapter 1. Look back there, Philippians 1 verse 19. Philippians 1 verse 19. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God, brothers and sisters, that dwells inside you is associated with power and courage and boldness in being a witness all throughout the Scriptures. Listen to a few passages. The prophet Micah, Micah 3.8, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage, to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Mary is told in Luke 1.35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This power is given specifically so that we might stand fast as witnesses to Christ with all boldness, As Christ tells his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the world. And what a transformation that Spirit brought, brothers and sisters. Consider the disciples on the night of Christ's arrest. Despite all their bold talk, all Peter's bold talk, 
Peter was not willing that night to follow the lamb wherever he would go. We read in Luke's gospel, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And about an hour had passed. Another began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him before a rooster crows today, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The tears of someone who has denied their faith in their Lord. Look at Peter after the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Acts 5, Peter and the apostles stand before the council. We read, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is his Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What a transformation. That's night and day, Christian. If you, like me, identify more in the pre-Pentecost disciples, you're like, yep, that's me right there. Not so much the post-Pentecost disciples. What hope there is for you if you have the Holy Spirit of God? For he is the power of God. And if the Lamb calls you to follow him into persecution, even death, he will give you a measure of the Spirit that you need to bear it. This is why Christ says, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Be encouraged, Christian. Look at the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not the men. They're just men. They're like you. As James says of the prophet Elijah, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So were these men. They were sinners just like you. They had weakness. They had sin. Look what the Spirit of God can do to weak, feeble sinners. He can make them bold witnesses for Christ. And note how Paul describes the Spirit in that passage. It's the Spirit of Christ. This is how Christ is with us until the end of the age. When Thomas DeLon and his wife and two children were in that nasty prison, Christ was there with them. It means of the Spirit. When you are in the workplace, when you are in school, wherever you are, and the world demands your submission, you will not be alone. Christ will bear you up, and he is with you by his Spirit. Well, let's close the chapter out, picking up in Daniel 3, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Be encouraged, Christian. That God is your God. and The same spirit dwells within you. Lastly, before we close, I would speak to those of you here who are not yet Christians. Perhaps children, those who have not yet placed their faith in Christ. You too have a choice to make today. You have a choice whether or not you will bow the knee and worship or not. Yet the choice is not bowing between an idol or not, but bowing the knee to the true God and worshiping him and his son, Jesus Christ. 
We read in Revelation 14, 9 through 19, another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, be cast into the lake of fire. It's very ironic. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are threatened with, with being cast into a fiery furnace if they do not bow to a false idol. We see here those who worship the beast are threatened with the lake of fire if they do not worship the true God. For those who are cast into this fire by God, none can rescue. You see, while God can deliver out of the hands of all, None is able to deliver out of his hands. As God says in Isaiah 43, 13, Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? And yet there is time for you today. Even now. There's time to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, and your sins will be forgiven You will have the mark of the lamb placed upon you. Not physically, that's not what that's talking about. You will be numbered as his own and you will be safe from that fire. But the choice is yours today. I pray you place your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how weak we are. How timid. And yet, Lord, on the one hand, if we were not timid when we looked at our own weaknesses, we would be fools. Yet, Lord, help us to also be wise insofar as by faith we take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on you. We don't know what the future holds, Lord, and yet would you help us to be ready? Would you even give us a courage and boldness that we might be your witnesses, even here, even if persecution does not come as we see here? Help us to still be your bold witnesses by the power of the Spirit. We pray all these things in the name of Christ.